Amen, and good morning. Uh, children, you are dismissed, and if you will use the center aisle, we'll see you in a bit. And you'll also find in your uh, material this morning this handout, Shepherding the Flock, who is sufficient for these things. And if it helps you to follow along and make notes, then uh, please do so. I love preaching. It's never become a burdensome thing to me. I've had colleagues who found it thus, and that puzzles me. I also really love preaching from the lectionary, the, the scripture readings that we have, especially with texts like today's readings. Were they not just tremendous? I mean, it's all God's word, I know, but some texts just grab you, do they not? And, and today's texts uh, compel me to speak about myself and my fellow clergy. And frankly, that can be a little scary. Case in point, our first reading. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, Ezekiel is told. Prophesy and say to them, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You do not feed them. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them so that they are scattered. Because there was no shepherd, they became food for all the wild beasts. Behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hands. Those are sobering words, are they not? Matthew Henry, the great Puritan uh, scholar and, and theologian of the 17th century, describes them in this, his con comment on this passage, having been very much accessory to the sin and ruin of Israel. When I read that word from him, accessories, couldn't help but think about the police dramas and courtroom dramas that we see on television where you'll recall that there are some people who, even though they don't commit the crime, they get charged or threatened with being charged with being an accessory after the fact and that sort of thing. Well, it kind of tells me, among other things, that even though these shepherds are culpable and held accountable to God, it doesn't let the sheep off. Okay? And I just point that out because we will never be able to blame anyone when we stand before our maker. Nevertheless, nevertheless, these shepherds and modern-day shepherds are included as well, are, are going to be held accountable as well for how we handle and how we shepherd our sheep. And as Matthew Henry goes on to say, having been very much accessories to the sin and ruin of Israel by their negligence, their unskillfulness, and their unfaithfulness. That is a scathing denunciation. Well, the reading ends at verse 11. But in verse 12, our Lord goes, our, the Lord himself rather, goes on to say, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I, God himself speaking, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. I will bring them out from the peoples, gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. On rich pasture shall they feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, God says, will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And that is God's promise to Israel to bring them back following the 70 years captivity. After the Babylonians uh, destroyed Jerusalem and captured them, they, they carted many of the residents off to Babylon. And God is promising here following 70 years that he would bring his people back. But there's more to it than that, is there not? I mean, do not these words sound familiar? They surely must, after we read from John's gospel, what we just saw, that it is most fitting 
that our Lord himself calls himself the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, who knows the sheep, who likewise are, are know their shepherd. And he even speaks in, in John's gospel there of those other sheep who are not of his fold. And these, of course, are the Gentiles. Jesus dealt with the Gentiles a great deal in his ministry here on the earth. These are the non-Jews. And he says, I have other sheep of this fold who will listen to my voice. And he's referring again to those Gentiles. And thus our Lord Jesus ultimately fulfills and is fulfilling Ezekiel's promise to, or to this day, one sheep at a time. That's the way he does it, one at a time. Back in the 1940s, uh, a hymn writer wrote uh, a little tune entitled Jesus and Me. Are any of you old enough to remember that song and would admit, would admit it this morning? Oh, come on now. All right. The words go something like this. Now it's Jesus and me for each tomorrow, for every heartache and every sorrow. I know that I can depend upon my newfound friend, and so to the end, it's Jesus and me. Some of you, is that more familiar? Some of you, still not? Dr. Henry, help me out here. Do you remember it? <laughs> Ira Stansel wrote that. Poor Ira. He's much forgotten. Well, why do I point that out? Because... In fairness to the writer, it doesn't say just Jesus and me. But I'm afraid that that's what a lot of Christians take it to mean. That's how a lot of Christians live their life. Hey, church, who needs it? It's just Jesus and me. Just you and me, Lord. Forget everyone else. A lot of Christians live that way. And yes, in baptism, as individuals, we are united to Christ, one sheep at a time. But we are also united to the church, the body of Christ to the flock. Do you know that there are some 59 verses in the New Testament that use the words one another for how we are to relate to each other in the flock? For example, we're to love one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. Google that sometime, 59 one another verses, and it'll, it'll pop right up. You don't even have to go through and look them all up. But this is how we are, as sheep are to relate to one another how we're to treat one another in God's family. But, and, it, and if we would just simply do that, all those 59, wouldn't it be awesome? <laughs> well, that would be great, but it's not enough. Our Lord actually commissioned his apostles to be shepherds over his flock <clears throat> to facilitate that process of creating a new society called the family of God. And in John chapter 21, you recall post-resurrection uh, appearance of our Lord the disciples, the lads have been out fishing all night, and Jesus is there at the, at the, at the beach cooking them breakfast. He cooks them fish and bread. And, and part of the conversation, he turns to Simon Peter and says, do you love me? Simon says, Lord, yes, I do. You know I love you. What does Jesus say? Feed my lambs. The little ones, the most vulnerable. Later in the conversation, he says to him again, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus says, tend or shepherd my sheep. That word translated tend in our ESV is actually the verb form of the noun shepherd. And it is sometimes translated, shepherd my sheep. Be a shepherd to my sheep. A third time he asked him, much to Peter's chagrin. Peter, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. Again, the answer is feed my sheep. And that's what Peter did. Peter spent the rest of his life until he was crucified himself, tending the sheep. We read in Peter's first epistle, chapter 5, verse 1, 
so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. And that word elder, as you can see, is the noun presbyteros, which sounds like Presbyterian, and that's where we get that word. That word morphed into English to the word priest. So he says, I exhort those of you elders, you priests, to do what? Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Again, that, that verb form of that word shepherd. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And again, the word oversight, as you can see, is the verb form of the noun episkopos, which is the Greek word for what we now call bishop, literally overseers. And that's what he says, shepherd the flock, exercising oversight of the flock. And you'll notice that it's not our flock. This isn't our flock. This is God's flock. And that is a sobering reminder as well. He goes on to say in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And then we have this word, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Well, that's a sobering reminder, again, of our accountability to the Lord, but also a great promise that to those shepherds who perform their duty faithfully, there is this wonderful, unfading, as Peter calls it here, crown of glory. Well, there's nothing glamorous or glorious about herding sheep. Now, I'm talking about the four-legged kind, okay, so don't. Before he became king, King David was the shepherd and his family. He took care of dad's sheep of the flock. And why did he get that distinction? Because he was the youngest. He had no seniority. <laughs> he was the low man on the totem pole, so he got the crummy job of tending after dad's sheep. It's always intrigued me that God calls us sheep. I mean, we're not the majestic lions of God's tribe. He could have said that, couldn't he? No. We're not the fast, beautiful thoroughbreds of his stable. No. We're not even the dogs of his kennel, are we? No. We are the sheep of his pasture. Sheep, among other things, are fairly helpless. Uh, they, they have no, no means of protecting themselves, no real weapons, no sharp teeth, no claws. Uh, no quills like the porcupine, no horrible smell like the skunk to ward off predators, no wings to escape like the birds. No wonder they become, as Ezekiel said, food for the wolves, food for the predators. That's all they are. You won't see them performing tricks like dogs. They're virtually untrainable. And they tend to wander and go astray, as Isaiah reminds us all, that we all, including himself, like sheep, go astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Thankfully, Jesus is the good shepherd who loves us, who will seek to rescue us when we go astray, and who indeed gave his very life to accomplish our rescue. Don't you just love that picture? I think that picture typifies what I'm saying here, that Jesus, the great shepherd, risks his own life, and in fact gives his very life to rescue this sole solitary sheep who is surely about to die. And this is what our Lord does for us as well. He rescues us from sin's penalty. He rescues us from the power of the evil one and from the ultimate enemy, death itself. And that, beloved, is the gospel. And it is couched in these very terms. Now, we clergy are, I would remind you, fellow sheep. And I say that because to some people somehow think that we must be in some class of spiritual elite. Uh, all you have to do is speak to our wives and they will assure you that, that we are not. We are also works in progress, just as you are. 
and the work of the, of the ministry that we do is not so much something we are doing for God. Now hear me well on this. It is not so much what we are doing for God. It is what God is doing in and through us. Now that is not some pious platitude. I assure you it's not. And every true pastor, every true clergyman knows and understands that. That the work that we do it doesn't come from us. That it is what God is doing through us. And that is also the clear teaching of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, listen to Paul's words. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, this picture of this glorious parade of victorious soldiers, and through us, Paul said, through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death, to death. To the other, a fragrance of life. So we are, while we are works in progress just like you are, we nevertheless are different. We clergy are different, as if I needed to tell you that. We have the call of God on our lives, and the church recognizes that call via the process that we call holy orders, ordination. Now that practice varies uh, from church to church, of course. But it all comes down to that. It all comes down to the idea that God sets certain people apart for this work and for this ministry. And in speaking of his own ministry to the Corinthians, it's as if Paul seems almost overwhelmed at the prospect of his own words here and pauses to ask himself this question. Who is sufficient for these things? Who in the world can take this upon themselves? Who indeed can bear the responsibility, the weight, of being the very aroma of Christ before a lost and dying world. He goes on to answer that question in verse 16 and 17, 2 Corinthians 2, 16. For we, Paul says, we, he and his colleagues, we are not like so many who are peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And herein lies the key. And this is the punchline. This is what I want to say to you this morning to, to bring it to a sharp point. These are the keys to us being the kind of clergy that God wants us to be and that you expect and are entitled to. And this is how I want you to pray for me. I hope that you pray for every pastor, every deacon, every bishop that you know. I hope you pray for them specifically. Not just God bless Foley and God bless Henry and God bless, you know, going down the line like that. No, I mean, I guess that's better than nothing. But be specific. Be specific about what you're asking God for. And this kind of gives us an outline, and I hope that some of you will commit to doing that and you will take these five things that Paul says right here. Number one, number one, that I will love Jesus. I'm couching it in first person. That I will love Jesus. That is number one. Is that not what Jesus asked Peter? Before Peter gets the commission to tend the sheep, three times Jesus just wants to know one thing. Do you love me? Do you love me more than anything else? Paul speaks in verse 17 of those who are nothing more than what he calls peddlers of God's word. What do they love? Well, they love money. And they will use Jesus to that end. They don't really love Jesus supremely. Some things never do change, do they? Is that not true today? Yes, I'm speaking of the name it, claim it, help and wealth gospel that is still popular among us. And I'm not going to chase that rabbit, don't worry. But, as I thought about this, I thought, but even to those who have managed to avoid that heresy, 
And that is what it is. Even to those who manage, the question still remains, do I love Jesus? Do I love Jesus supremely above everything else? Number two, pray that I will be sincere. Paul describes he and his ministerial colleagues as men of sincerity, Paul says. Pray that I and my colleagues, in other words, will be real. That we will always keep it real, that we will say what we mean, mean what we say, not just on Sunday morning, certainly there, but always, that there will not ever in our lives be a hint of pretense or super pious kind of sort of thing or hypocrisy about us. That we will not be playing the role, but they will keep it real. Number three, pray that I will speak as commissioned by God. I like that. I like that particular translation. And you'll see here, you'll notice this is a young graduate from the United States Military Academy about to receive his diploma. And a few minutes after this picture is made, I know what happens because it has happened countless times and every year. Those midshipmen, he and his fellow midshipmen are going to take those midshipmen hats and what are they going to do with them? Throw them up in the air. Why? Because they're never going to wear them again. The next hat they put on will be the hat of a commissioned officer in the United States Navy. And therefore, when they speak to those under their command, they don't speak with their own authority. They speak as those commissioned by the United States government itself to give those orders. How many of you recognize this young man? Who is he? Dr. Henry. That is Henry Baldwin. Give it up for Dr. Henry. Midshipman no more. Amen. That, that, is a, that is a proud moment. I thank Dr. Henry for letting me share that. Because it really speaks to what I'm saying in this point here. And that is this. I do not stand here today or any day in my own authority. Nor do I come here with my opinions. And I hope that you never come here to hear my opinions or the opinions of my colleagues. Hence, my lifelong pursuit and desire to understand God's word and get it right. That is the most sobering thought in my life, is that, that somehow I do not speak God's word clearly and accurately to the sheep. That, that is the thing that causes me to lay awake at night. <laughs> it honestly does. And so you need to understand that about your clergy, that we come commissioned by God. Number four, that I will speak in the sight of God. That I will speak in the sight of God. Well, doesn't God see everything? <laughs> of course he does. And the fact is that we do everything we do in the sight of God. It's kind of though like when we say, as God is my witness. As Paul said often in his ministry. For when we do, if we understand that God is indeed our witness, when we understand that we speak in the sight of God, then we will be fearless in our actions as well as in our words. Even as our Lord was in preaching in his dialogue with those around him, with the religious leaders, with the people of, of the streets as he talked to them, he was absolutely fearless. And finally, number five, pray that I, pray that we will speak in Christ. In Christ, for that is our truest identity. You know, this is Paul's favorite way of describing Christians. We're only called Christians three times in the New Testament. Paul's writings alone, you know how many times he uses the phrase in Christ or in him to describe us? 200 times. 200 times. Why? Because that is our 
identity. That is our truest identity. We are those who are now in Christ. So this morning, for our context, it is this. Pray that my confidence, my courage, motivation, wisdom, energy, everything it takes for me to do what I do and for my colleagues to do what they do will all come from one source, namely our union with Christ. Did not our Lord say to his disciples, abide in me, abide in me, because apart from me, you can do nothing. That's the key to it all. And that's our number one business, is to abide in Christ, to love him, to be men of sincerity, commissioned of God in the sight of God, and as those who are in Christ. Who is sufficient for these things? That's a sobering question, and I ask myself that often. Paul goes on in the next page of his letter to say, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.